please remain standing for the gospel, which is taken from Matthew chapter 12. Hear now the word of God. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not a sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is the word of God. Praise Praise be to God. Please be seated. Well, we're returning this morning to 1 Samuel. You guys remember 1 Samuel, right? 1 Samuel, um, at the beginning of uh, chapter 21 which is our text this morning. David has tearfully departed from Jonathan in the field, and he now has no help from his friend. He has no help from his wife, Michael, no help from Samuel. And his break with Saul is now final. So David, the anointed king, is now in the wilderness. And the reality of that royal destiny of David's is going to be mocked and apparently denied by the bleak world that he now enters. It's an astonishing thing to read the narrative of 1 Samuel. There is, over the next section of the book, 15 straight episodes, wilderness tales of flight and terror and dread and survival. And this is always the path to royal glory. Exodus, then wilderness, then Canaan for Israel. Baptism, then into the wilderness, culminating in the cross, then glory for Jesus. And so it is for us. No one escapes the wilderness. Many of you are in wildernesses, fearful this morning, dreadful wildernesses in some cases, long wildernesses. The New Testament says that we, by faith, not by sight, have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to our destination. And yet the New Testament also says, we heard this from Hebrews this morning, we are seeking and striving to enter that heavenly destination, and we remain in the realm of sin and death and danger and the powers. We remain struggling with the present evil age, even as we are lifted up into the age to come. This is the paradox and the mystery and the tension and the grandeur and the agony of the Christian existence. And life in the wilderness is something that we see very clearly in David. And as we will see, it is simplified. I mean, David's life now is pretty simple. It's uncluttered. It's raw. It's close to the ground. It's dangerous. And the wilderness can be a place of death. A whole generation of Israelites died there, and untold Christian disciples have perished there. 
Baptized millions of Christians have died in the wilderness. And so the wilderness then brings clarity. Because it strips away illusions. A person in the wilderness cultivates, we pray, a new kind of God consciousness. Because they are now in a place of desperate dependence. Of groaning and yearning and vigilant watching and waiting and fasting and praying. In the wilderness, people have order and they have proportion. They see the world differently because they see it close to the ground from the bottom up. And so it's a place often behind a very frowning providence. Right? David has, is in the midst of a frowning providence, as are many of you. This is where God acts for his people in distress. And we will see that this morning. So I'm going to make two points. They're on the back inside page of the bulletin. Manna and madmen. So first, manna in the wilderness. So this is 1 Samuel 21. David flees to Nob, just a couple of miles from where he was when he left Jonathan. Apparently, the tabernacle, which was destroyed at Shiloh, had been moved to Nob, and Nob is now a priestly city. And so David comes to a priest named Ahimelech, who we note is the great-grandson of Eli. And Eli's priestly line, going back to the beginning of the book, lies under a curse. It's going to be removed. So it's kind of an ominous sign. One of the things about the Hebrew narrator, he expects us to read longitudinally. Like, he expects you to remember that he told you something 17 chapters ago about Eli's house. That's important. And he doesn't wake you up. He doesn't say, hey, remember, I told you 17 chapters ago. Like, the Hebrew narrator expects you to be big boys and big girls and read the whole story. He does this over and over and over. He's echoing back one chapter, two chapters, 15 chapters. So when you see Ahimelech and you know, oh, this guy is a descendant of Eli, this is not a great place for David to be. And the story hasn't even started. His line is under a curse. And so Ahimelech comes out. He sees David. And the text says he trembles. He suspects something suspicious is going on. Maybe he suspects David's a fugitive. He certainly, it it appears, fears King Saul. And they have a little conversation. And this conversation assumes a previous acquaintance between the two of them or at least an acquaintance with David on Ahimelech's part. I mean, David is a pretty famous military commander in Saul's army, and he's a member of the administration as far as Ahimelech's concerned, as far as he knows. But he's he's puzzled, so he says to David, why are you alone? And, And why is no one with you? Because a person like David would have people. Like he would have a bit of an entourage with him. And so David says this, the king has sent me on a mission and said, no one can know anything about it. And my men, there's no men with him. We don't know if the men are made up or not. My men, they're going to meet me at a certain place. Again, the narrator 
of course, makes no comment on the lie. I mean, almost always the Hebrew narrator is not hovering over the text trying to get you to see the moral. But what he does is he expects you to read the text and figure out what happens in, in response to or downstream from this lie. So this opens up space for reflection, for conversation, for debate about what's going on with these characters. So there's no comment, David just lies. Well, David may want to protect Ahimelech from reprisals, right? Give him plausible denial. At the very least, he probably wants to calm his fears. But whatever his intention, this is a lie that is going to have disastrous consequences. And the narrative will show that as things play out. So, in any event, David asks the priest bluntly for some loaves of bread, whatever he can find. And Ahimelech says, we don't have any ordinary bread. We just have this consecrated bread, the show bread, on the table, in the temple, which is changed out every Sabbath. That's only for the priests to eat. But Ahimelech says, you know, I'm willing to bend the rules here. As long as your, your men are not ceremonially unclean, you know, I'll probably give you some bread. And David says, sure. We're always clean when we're on an expedition. And the priest gives him the consecrated bread. And at this point, there's just another ominous note, just inserted. One of Saul's servants happened to be there that day, a guy named Doeg the Edomite. He's a foreigner. He's part of the people of Esau, people from Esau all the way down to Herod, who was also an Edomite, who are enemies of Israel. And get this, we're told that this guy, this foreign enemy from a foreign enemy people, was Saul's chief shepherd. Saul has rejected the shepherd that God has provided in David, and he has this foreigner in his service. And if he is one of Saul's servants, then he surely knows about the assassination order on David's head because Saul told all his servants that. But for now, his presence is just intruded into the flow of the narrative, and it's simply noted. And the text moves on but he will become a very important figure in a chapter or two. Now, David needs not only bread, he needs weapons. Saul always has that spear of his nearby. David is defenseless. So he asks for a sword and a spear, and there's this little dialogue where the priest tells him, look, I've got Goliath's sword here. I've preserved it. This has got to be one of the main reasons that David fled to Nob. He probably knows this sword is here and he can get it. And he says, there's none like it. Give it to me. The the sword, which was the fruit of David's first victory for Saul, on Saul's behalf, will now ironically be used to defend David from Saul. So the second thing here I want to look at is this idea of madmen. You can get a sense in this text of just how erratic and shaken and desperate David is here. Note this. The very day he secures a Philistine weapon, a famous one at that, he flees. He flees, right, inexplicably, 25 miles south and west directly into Philistine territory with 
the sword of Goliath. Right? The text tells us he fled from Saul, who he clearly fears more than the Philistines. It appears he just wants the easiest way out of Saul's jurisdiction. And he flees to one Akesh, the king of Gath. And Gath is, believe it or not, Goliath's hometown. It's a bizarre place to go. One wonders, did David think he could remain incognito here? Does he think he, is he going to hire himself out as a mercenary? Does he think Goliath's hometown is going to welcome him with open arms as he comes in with Goliath's sword? He has gone to a town where he is public enemy number one. And he's recognized immediately by one of Akesh's servants who says, isn't this David, the king of the land? It's remarkable that they call him the king of the land. They seem to know more than Saul does about David's destiny. They see a shift in power. This is David. He's the king of the land. They even know the song, the famous song that was composed upon the slaying of Goliath. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. David hears the song. He hears the servants say this and reference the song. And the text says he's very much afraid. This is the only time, the only time in the harrowing narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel where David is said to be afraid. He's fled into the teeth of his mortal foes and he clearly fears for his life. And if you want to know how scared he is, you can read Psalm 56, which was composed on this occasion. If you think godly people don't get scared, you have too otherworldly a conception of godliness. Of course they get scared, but they flee to God. They write Psalm 56 when they're scared. So, David now has to concoct another strategy. It turns out that the wilderness requires him to use his wits and not the weapon he has just procured. This is so much like the providence of God in our lives, beloved, is it not? Because you think, you know what? I have got to go and get that sword of Goliath from Nob. Because if I get that sword, I'll be able to do the things that God wants me to do. I'll be able to protect myself. I'll be able to do this, and I'll be able to do that. I'll be able to do this. You get the sword, and no sooner do you have the sword, and it's useless. You're in another situation where you need another set of skills that you don't particularly maybe even have. Like, and all your planning is useless. You planned and you prepped and you walked into this meeting or that encounter or that situation, and all your planning is out the window 14 seconds into it. And that's where David is. He's got this sword. It's of no value to him. So you know what he does? He pretends to be insane. It's a different skill set than wielding the the, the Goliath sword. The text says he pretends to be insane while he was in their hands, which means he's been detained or arrested, taken into custody. While he was in their hands, the text says he acted like a madman. This is now the third act, literally the third act of deception in this chapter alone. And on top of this, he engages in a little... um, 
graffiti art. What do the kids call it? Tagging? A little graffiti art, like making marks on the doors of the gate. And he lets saliva run down his beard. And the scene anticipates a long string of coming humiliations for David. When you think that you've lost everything, Bob Dylan says, you find out you can always lose a little more. And David keeps going down and down and down. Lower than Homer's Odysseus, who had to dress up like a beggar, right? David has to feign madness to survive. And here's the great irony. Who does he look like now? Saul. He looks like Saul laying on the ground raving and becoming the butt of a mocking proverb. Is Saul too among the prophets? I mean, Saul's is, of course, genuine madness. David's is wilderness madness on the way to the throne. And Akesh, the king of Gath, he seems revolted at the spectacle. And he says to his servants, this guy's insane. Why did you bring him to me? And then, in what is a truly funny line from a leader, he says, am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this guy in here to carry on? Like, like I don't have enough insane, crazy people in my cabinet? I mean, madmen never seem to be in short supply, right? It's funny. Am I so short of madmen that you had to bring me another one? So David's act provokes a combination of outrage and disgust, and it works. It works. It turns out that among his other skills, David can act a little. And Akesh doesn't want him killed. He could have easily been killed here. David thought he was going to be killed here if you read Psalm 56. But Akesh simply sends him away. And if you can see into the the soul of David, if you wanted to think, what did he feel like when he's let go here? You can read Psalm 34 for that, which appears to be written after his escape. So what are we to make of these two scenes? Like, what do they say to us today? How are we to read them? And here I'm going to make two points And they're really just new labels for the same two points in the sermon. I'm going to call the first one provision and the second one deliverance. Because that's what this text is about for you. So first, let's talk about provision. We can't understand this episode of getting the bread at Nob without seeing that Jesus himself cites it in what was our gospel lesson. You know, 1 Samuel is a long book. And when I go through it and I think, I, I read a chapter, I, read, I was reading chapter 21 a while back, and I thought, I don't know, I think I'll skip this chapter, go to the next one. But then I realized, well, Jesus talks about it. And Jesus is not talking about 1 Samuel a lot, so I think we need to look at the chapter. And you heard it in the gospel lesson. He and his disciples are accused of breaking the Sabbath by picking some heads of grain left standing in a field. Probably the accusation is that this is a form of work. In any event, Jesus, rather surprisingly, in his defense, refers to, of all things, our text. He answers them, the gospel says, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? 
very dangerous when Jesus asks you a question, right? So they accuse him and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath, and Jesus starts like this. Hey, you guys know 1 Samuel? You've read that, right? Haven't you read what David did? He entered the house of God, he and his companions, he ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, but only for the priests. It was not lawful. Jesus makes it clear, and yet clearly he exonerates David. Not the lying necessarily, that would be another debate, but the eating of the holy priestly bread. Why? Why is David exonerated? Well, on one level, it's simple. Deeds of mercy are acceptable on the Sabbath. Right? Jesus goes on to say, if you'd have known that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. But he doesn't seem to see anything wrong with what David does. Even though it was unlawful from the point of view of sacrificial law. Mercy, Jesus says, trumps sacrifice. This is another order and proportion thing. Right? Priestly regulations do not override basic human needs. Or as Jesus puts it, referring to the same incident. In Mark's gospel, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. By the way, that's true of the whole law. If it's true of the Sabbath, it's true of the whole law. The law was made for human flourishing, for human order, and for human happiness. Human wellness is not made for the law. And we often get this reversed, I think. The law exists for you. You don't exist for the law. And Jesus recognizes that the law, especially in the hands of religious people, can become an inhumane power. And that's how it was with these Pharisees. So doing good, meeting a concrete need on the Sabbath, even one which requires an unlawful ceremonial act, that's the very essence of Sabbath keeping. Now, that's often all that's said about this incident. But I think there's something much more profound than merely this idea of mercy on the Sabbath at play here. And we get a glimpse of it when Jesus says this. And this is, again, in the gospel lesson. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So... It's not just exceptions for deeds of mercy. We have in Christ one who's Lord of the Sabbath and Lord of the temple where the bread is housed. So Jesus is saying something like this. He does not receive bread on the Sabbath because of a loophole or because of some clever interpretation or even because of the deeper meaning of the law. He receives bread on the Sabbath because he's Lord of the Sabbath and he's Lord of the temple and he's Lord of the manna. He can receive bread because he is the bread of life come down from heaven. He's the bread giver. He's the bread which comes down and gives its life for the world. And thus David, as a type of this Christ, as the already anointed king, has a right to the bread in the tabernacle. So Christ himself, from the future, is determining the shape of the text in 1 Samuel. So Israel received manna, bread from heaven in the wilderness. And David, the king, embodies Israel. He's in the wilderness, and thus he gets bread from heaven, from the tabernacle. 
And so the text turns out to be about a God who provides for his king in the midst of his extremities, in the midst of the most confusing, degrading, terrifying circumstances. And in Christ, this God can and will do so for you. In your wilderness, on your journey towards Sabbath rest, he will give you your daily bread. In your humiliations and exiles and disruptions and dislocations, in all of your broken planning and futile preparedness for things, he did so for David in the wilderness, he did so for Christ in the wilderness, and through Christ he does so for you in this present wilderness. As David wrote in Psalm 34, after these events, he says this, Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. Now, in one sense, David lacks everything, but he has God. He has bread from heaven in the wilderness. This is what he means in Psalm 34. The lions may grow weak and weary, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Or to put this in New Testament language, our God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. In Jesus Christ, God has and is and shall be your provision. He shall be enough. So that's provision. The second thing I want to say in closing is deliverance. This strange playing of the madmen. Call it deliverance by drooling. Nevertheless, through this foolish drooling, God delivered his servant. And afterwards, David writes this in Psalm 34, referring to this incident. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. It's a a psalm of gratitude for deliverance from a life-threatening situation. And it is through, it is through the folly, right, the, the, the equivalent of public drooling, the utter folly of a crucified Messiah, one who, note, the religious authorities thought was mad, They thought he was insane. They thought he was a madman, that he was demon-possessed. One whose family at one point thought he was out of his mind. It is through the folly of that crucified Messiah, by means of this insidious Roman instrument of torture. This means a public degradation and shame and humiliation that you are delivered. You know, the, the, the writers of the long passion narratives in the Gospels, They do not talk a lot about, for all of the ink that they use, the actual, they do not dwell on the actual physical sufferings of Jesus. They depict the scene, but what they really focus on is the shame, the disgrace, the mocking, the humiliation. So deliverance by drooling becomes deliverance by death, even the maddening, degrading death of the cross. It's a shocking, unexpected, even irreligious, in a certain sense, godless way of deliverance. 
So it's that cross, then, from which our provision and deliverance flow. You know what this means for you? It means God has already delivered you. He has already provided for you. When God actually changes your circumstances in favorable ways, it's just the downstream fruit of his already embracing you in this cross. And in embracing you, I mean embracing your shame and your degradation and your humiliations and your brokenness. Right? And on that cross, then, we see the bread of heaven. We see one who is a madman and a fool in the eyes of the world. Right? When Paul participates in the cross in his apostolic ministry, what does he call the apostles? He says, we are as the scum of the earth. By the way, I read recently there's a church in Denver among the poor that has that name. What a great name for a church that is. The scum of the earth church. Because they're seeking to embrace Paul's suffering, Christ's suffering among the weakest, among those deemed as the scum of the earth. Jesus becomes as the scum of the earth, as a drooling madman, broken and bleeding for your wholeness and for your salvation. The text is about God's deliverance for you and God's provision for you. And they are sure. They are certain. And finally, that cross then, it becomes the paradigm of the Christian life in our way through the wilderness. Right? This is why Jesus tells us, take it up. And taking it up in conformity with Christ's death, we know the power of his resurrection. In this age, there's no other way to know the power of the resurrection except through the cross. We taste resurrection life even now by faith in dying with Christ. It's not like we, we do the cross for a while and then we get resurrection later. We are permanently crucified with Christ and permanently raised. We get resurrection life, Paul says, in conformity with his death. So the way of the cross is our deliverance, it's our provision, and thus it's the way to everlasting glory. Right? Everlasting glory in the Son of David, the one greater than the temple, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus the King who is your deliverer and your provider. Amen.